0: And welcome to the next episode of The Prestige A podcast all about films, filmmakers and the films that we love And the films maybe sometimes we don't love Each week we pick a film, we talk about a film We discuss some of the ideas and themes it throws up We're currently on a, our season 3 And we're doing it month by month, director by director And currently we are, we've are we just finished up our Spike Lee season And we're about to start on this next month uh, For Feb, for March even uh, We're looking at Nicholas Winding Refn Or Winding Refn, depending on how you to pronounce it but as always we have two other regular segments of the show. We end with our recommendations for further reading, further watching as you were movies we inspired by this week's movie but we always start with what else we've been watching, what else we've been enjoying um, this last week. A chance for us to talk about other things that we have experienced uh, and like. So Sam, do you have anything for us to uh, chew upon this week uh, for, for uh, what you've been watching?
1: Well yes um, TV wise because I don't see films anymore Um I've been—I mean, for the past uh, six, seven, eight years, there've been some absolutely amazing Scandinavian crime dramas, police procedurals, and um, things like *The Killing* and *Borgen*, which isn't even crime-related. It's just fantastic. Um, and I thought, in the spirit of watching a Scandinavian film this week, I should be checking out. Um, something like that. I So I've had had a project over the last sort of six, seven years, as said, to try and find the next killing or the next Borgen. Um And so I will watch any old Scandinavian drama, just on the off chance that it is any good. And um, this week I watched a drama called Case, which is... Um, This is no spoiler, it shows you in the first frame, is the um, investigation around the uh, suicide of a ballerina who hangs herself, or maybe it isn't suicide, maybe she is hanged on the stage of an opera house. And um, I turned it off after 20 minutes because it was terrible. So my search for good Scandinavian drama goes on.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. I thought I was going to yes. go in a different way, but there we go. have a you? Well, I, I I can temper that with an, actually a good proper recommendation of a show that uh, I I'm, I'm very much enjoying. I am a fan of a chef called David Chang who has appeared on a few Anthony Bourdain shows, a few things here and there, um, and he appears to have his reached his own show finally, and it's on Netflix, and it's called Ugly Delicious. And essentially it is him looking at what is otherwise considered, as he puts it, ugly delicious food. So there's an episode on pizza, an episode on tacos, an episode on crayfish, and an episode on barbecue. And but he takes it all around the world. So you see the guys in Japan who are making sushi pizza. And the differences between, you know, New York pizza and Chicago pizza. But they also investigate Domino's. He does it he does a shift as Domino's um, delivery man um, and when they're looking at tacos they also experience taco bell and all that sort of thing they sort of you chart the history of these things and how how the taco came to be and how uh, you know about the, how the spanish brought over flour which brought in the wheat tortillas uh, versus the corn tortillas and that sort of stuff and it's somewhere between kind of a magazine show and a history but also a cooking lesson it isn't a cooking show in the sense of you get a recipe um, but it's very inspirational in that effect the whole first season is on Netflix right now. I I, I am hardcore main-loaning it this week. Um, it was a case of I genuinely had to think, yeah, I really should watch this movie, but I could just watch more of this show. Um, so it it is a hands down, heart heart recommendation. I think it's a brilliant thing to watch. Uh, so if you're any interested in food or or being a or, or cooking, this is, is an amazing show. Great.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: So yeah. Ugly, oh, really? um, I'll be delicious. I
1: would have to. Put that on the list of Netflix things to watch. Um, so, uh, as Rob mentioned earlier, our mini-season at the moment is uh, the work of Nicholas Winding slash Winding Um And I feel that Rob should know, given how he's worked with it
0: We just call him <laughs> it Nick. It's, it, it's you know, it's...
1: <laughs> right, okay. It's, it's the work of Nick. Um, we're starting with his early, was it? His first film, feature film? His debut, debut feature, film. yes. And 1996 is Pusher. That's all yeah. Pusher details the increasing desperation of a small-scale drug dealer called Frank, who owes money to a dealer who's further up in the crime world, and the consequences of this escalate until Frank is left with very little, both financially and emotionally. Um, it is a it's a foreign language film. Nick. Nick we're, we're not going to give him his full name. Um, made it in his his native language, so there are um, there are lots of Danish actors, Danish unknowns, but also the two leads will be quite familiar. They have broken into um, English language films and other popular um, TV series as well. Um, so, Rob, I I didn't know much about this beforehand, and. Did you, what was your introduction to this? So I, I knew of the film, I knew of the
0: series he, he had made. It was one that he mentioned mm. when we worked together. And we'll talk more about that next week, obviously, when we talk about Valhalla Rising. Um, so it's one he mentioned, it's one I was aware of, but I must say I'd never seen it uh, prior to this week. I haven't seen any of these, um, his his films prior to Valhalla Rising. So this was very much a, a sort of a new experience for me. Um, and I can't say it's one that I enjoyed, and I can't say that it's one that, that struck me in a way his later films were. I think this will be one of those months where we can see a clear progression of his work over, over his, mm. his career. But this film, you know, I've discussed previously on the show when we are looking at, um, I think it was uh, 21 Grams, um, that my, my tolerance for films about bad people who do bad things, there's nothing else to say about them, is short. Um, I think there are films out there that are brilliant talking about bad people doing bad things, but I think it, it, it's a harder, harder needle to thread when it comes to some movies. With me, particularly, other people's mileage may vary. And this sat in that, in that category. I think it's interesting because Nicholas is dad uh, reference, reference, reference dad is a film editor, um, and I think that showed in this film that you have this structure of these days as he sort of descends slowly, slowly into hell, and I get this kind of feeling of you know, the, the idea of Dante's circles of hell. Um, That he's descending down and down and down through these days, and there's some interesting editing, um, sort of tricks. But I didn't, I didn't connect with the film any kind of emotional level. I didn't overly care for the characters that that, that were in it. Um, I mean, there was some, it was interesting, kind of you know slice of life of the idea that uh, you know these these criminals are you know it's less flashy, it's less. Um, sort of gangster rap, it's less that kind of you know even get it in the British you did know, the idea of British gangster movies you see tend to be a bit more glamorizing of of the lifestyle and this isn't this is it shows the boredom and the tedium of the job as much as the uh, sort of the exciting bit of it but it just it was interesting but it didn't inspire me to watch any of the other ones um, and I just kind of felt left feeling a bit cold um, and I think as uh, we will we'll touch more on this in the next three weeks. I think uh, Wani Reffin is a very visual director. I think he does amazing visuals in his later work. And this didn't have any of that. There wasn't anything interesting for me to look at. Um, and yeah, it just kind of left me a bit like, alright. What about you, Sam?
1: Um, I'm glad that you had that response because um, I didn't really get on with this film and hoped it wasn't just me being distracted. Um Having to feed a four-month old at so the no. same time. Um it, yeah. As you said, it's in in its defence, I think you mentioned there some of the sort of British gangster films, so so in in, in the next decade, I suppose, Lockstock and Snatch and things like that. I think this is a better film than those. Um I think if you're looking for depictions of a criminal underworld then this is this is a, a good film. Um and I thought this was good. I didn't particularly enjoy it and I didn't particularly enjoy spending time with the characters. I did i suppose I suppose my response was a, sort of a, a respectful nod rather than anything else. I was I thought, yeah, this is good. This is I mean, this this didn't the biggest compliment I pay could pay, I suppose, is that I didn't know that this was his debut film, and this didn't look like a debut film. It it yeah, felt, I, felt I,
0: more. I, 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 will, I will give him that. You know, having seen uh, having worked on some some debut directors' films in my career, it, this has a certain I don't know confidence <laughs> to it.
1: Yeah,
0: um, that I can respect. Um and it's one of those films where I I respect the intention here. You know, he was looking for a slice of life and, and that kind of thing. And you know, it, it is a it's a ballsy first film, and there are hints of what's to come, particularly some stuff with the nightclub scenes, um, sort of doing some interesting stuff with lighting and framing. Um so yeah, I, I think I'm with you. It has that kind of well done, respectful nod to it as as a as a feature film. As a bit a deep debut hmm. film.
1: Yeah. I did think I mean, you, you've, you've mentioned that Ruffin's a very visual director and you didn't think that was present in this to any great extent, but I do think that this was a very, it's a very dark film. And I don't mean that emotionally, I mean that literally. The the, the lighting was, the, the mood of the piece was conveyed by the, the lighting at various times and it wasn't just the nightclub scenes. It wasn't
0: just scenes in back eyes. It was, it had a sort of sort of a grimy feel to it. I see what you're saying. I mean, I, I think thinking back to when we were watching um, on uh, the previous month, the previous month, um, when we were looking at 21 Grams, and when we were looking at um, Morris Perez, and Morris Perez has a very grimy feel to it, but it wasn't dark. It wasn't like underlit. And this film feels underlit rather than. Grimy to me. Now, I mean, I will, I will hang my hat and say, like, I am, as, as an ex film colorist, I am particular about my color, and I, I, I am very carefully. With it. And this just felt like it was, it was dirty and kind of bad, like shot badly, rather than a decision to be grimy in the way that something like, Morris Perez was on the other end of that same kind of coin.
1: Hmm. I, I think, I think you're doing a bit of a disservice here because I, I do think that there was a conscious decision made to like this film in a particular way. And I do, I mean, I don't have your eye for colour, but I do think that it became obvious that he he was using colour to convey emotions. And there was something, I mean, he may not have quite succeeded in doing it, but, like, as as you said, there's sort of a respectful nod to the fact that he is at least trying something here. I think you see that in the the lighting and the framing as well of the initial drug deal scene. You have Frank mm. and Tony moving outside, and then the two in the in the room conversing between them. And then that's another thing about this film. He's not afraid to have.
0: Sections in which not a lot happens. Yeah, I, I think I mean I, that's one thing. to Say this: we really come back to the idea of respectful nods. Like, I like the fact that the film didn't make any attempt to explain it. There, there was no easy to mm. this film. Um, he just went. you know This is it. You get you're getting on board. You're getting lost. Um, and there was never a moment in which someone turned to the camera, and explains what's going on. You have to in, infer as it goes along, and you kind of you pick up on lovely sort of tropes and things like that. But it just felt very like, yeah, this mm. is what's happening, um, and. I like I like that. I must say,
1: there was some. Uh, there was, I don't know if I'm treading on recommendations here, but if so, get googling. Um, there was something very pulp fiction about the early sequences, and there was um, there there were those, those sequences with it Samuel and Bruce Willis in the car.
0: Yep. Um, yes. yes. And, the no, blissful um, British, um
1: oh, Travolta. Travolta. yes yeah of course. um and discussing um royal with cheese and things like that when you know exactly what it is about and this this scene is about something completely different and there was something like it's these these conversations about sex and it became very clear very quickly that that's not what they were talking about at all and it was too yes. young Frustrated men who had very disturbing things to say, and there was there was something that that was something I really liked about this film. That the and and also you didn't get much of it because of the blow up between Frank and Tommy fairly early on. Like I quite liked the relationship between the two of them, which was it. They were sort of sexually frustrated schoolboys, even though they were thirty that was yes. their
0: relationship there was certainly an element of kind of the eternal child to them sort of the stunted developmental mm, growth
1: yeah
0: um and you know and a lot of the the problems that, that they face or that the that, that they face during the movie um that that uh, frank faces um are kind of his own his own fault like he, he makes silly decisions um and it, like turning on on um tony like he, that isn't something that he knows he's just taking up the word of the cops for that um, and he just feels like he's he's spiralling, but it's his own fault. He, he, the way he keeps Vic at arm's and length kind of impacts him. The way he treats his drug mules, impacts like he's the, his ideas of how to treat people is what brings his downfall. That if he was, you know, he had more of a a, a personable skill, um, but I think that he is the architect of his own destruction in many ways. You know, he, he goes to this drug lord who he's already in debt to. You know, it's not like he he was a he was a great you know seller who had one bad deal. He was already in in, in a bad state before everything kicked off.
1: Mm. Yeah, and it's that that was another interesting thing about this film. But he, the and the the drugs bust that goes wrong that leads to him being in health to such an extent is not it's not the primary reason for his downfall. Like you said, the primary reason for mm. Daffel is the decision to go to this guy to whom he was already in debt.
0: Yeah, he, he, he's like, yes, admittedly, the cops turning up was a um, was a uh, a mistake, but like he 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 set himself up for the
1: fall. Mm. Yeah, I did want to talk about those. Some, something in the way of a the theme to, today, for today's film, I was thinking about the idea of consumerism because there is a lot about what things are worth in this film. There are lots of prices, lots of we need this much money and mm. this costs this much. What do, do you think Griffin's trying to say something there about this, this culture that this crime exists in?
0: Well I think it's interesting that you know we, we this film comes out in what 92 96 looking at here 96 and you know like we, we, we it does feel like he's attempting to burst a bit of a bubble the, the, the uh, at this point you've got gangster rap certainly happening you've got uh, that kind of um sorry, the, the glamorization of of a criminal lifestyle. And this film's like it's, it clearly feels like it's designed to burst up a little bit. That he's saying, you know, there's rampant consumerism. Like the idea that a drug dealer, being a drug dealer, it isn't a glamorous life, living with you know champagne and crystal and gold bling. Like, this is a it is a vicious, grimy life. Even even Milo, who supposedly is the step above it, he is he is the big boss, seems to operate out of a, a little rundown cafe. Um, and there's nobody in this film who has anything resembling a glamorous life. And you know, he, he, there's a, a scene in which he talks to Vic and says, "You know, what's the difference between being, you know, three hundred pound whore or three thousand pound champagne girl?" To paraphrase. Um, and it's kind of like, well, there's nothing. And, and, and you know, she says there's a difference, and that feels like a, a sort of the central tenet of this film is that paying more for something makes it somehow worth more. Um, and him, him and the director kind of going, well. Does it like you know this life where people deal in 50,000 50, euros or whatever fifty thousand marks. um it, they're talking in massive sums money, but it all goes up the chain somewhere else like no one here is rolling in mm. cash
1: yeah and I suppose a, a reflection of that is the um I suppose the seediness of the deals that take place on the street. I, mean, I was just thinking then of the scene in which um, Frank's customer asks to sample the dope, and Frank gets Tony to come out with a sample and to hand it over and he has to get something out of his sock and palm something and give it to Frank and then he leans into the car window and you think, well, yeah, this, this is not a... a Goblin crystal lifestyle. This is, it, it, yeah, this is particularly horrible. This is what this is what drug dealing is like.
0: And, and I suppose in many ways it's the sort of thing where if this was a, a documentary on, on BBC Two, it'd be very interesting to look at the real life of a um, of, of, of a European drug dealer. Um, but it, for me, as a movie, it didn't kind of work. With that respect. If you say I
1: suppose. Simi- it felt in that respect similar to Veronica Guerin that we looked at a couple of months ago. That it was, if that had been a documentary about the life of a reporter during the Troubles, that would have been quite interesting. But it didn't really work as a film. And the same mm. with this; it's it, not quite doing what Ref wants to do.
0: And I'm not one who I think tied to overly, you know, traditional Hollywood standards of movies. But I think if you're going to try to make a fictional film. You need to either make it visual or make it driven. There are beautiful films, and we'll talk about um, this next week with um, *Valhalla Rising*, um, and I can expand a bit more on that. I don't want to sort of give too many things away for next week, next episode. Um, But not a great deal happens in some of his later films, Uh, but they have a visual styling to them. And I think if you look at something like um, even the one we did with on a couple of years ago, *Mad Max*. Like *Mad Max* hasn't got an amazing storyline. Mad Max hasn't got an overly driven character you, know, you, you aren't seeing nuanced character growth but it's a visual feast and I think you've got to pick a route and this feels somewhere between the two um it feels like he's and he does you know he, he does talk about and he has talked, talked about you know, wanting films that are quieter and slower and it's little less you know there aren't big shootouts there aren't you know he isn't interested in that kind of movie. But he doesn't back it up with anything else at this point. Now he does in time. I think that, like, I think we will see a, from my point of view, a clear progression as we go through the next next month. Um, but I think at this point he still still sort of hasn't found his place mm. yet.
1: I think. Well, you you mentioned Man Max. This is something that long term listeners will know that I'm not a huge fan of Man Max. Uh, well, certainly not as huge a fan as Rob was. And I think that's because I value narrative above aesthetics. And Rob is mm. perhaps on the on the other side of this. If this is a divide, um, and it's something this this podcast started years ago in, in discussions about uh, not. I think we can both agree, not particularly good film, three hundred, but it was that was a, a similar distinction between narratives and and aesthetic. And yes, yes yeah, This. This. You're right, there needs to be one or the other, and this feels not quite either.
0: Yes, it's all set up me doing mm. somewhere.
1: So, Rob, do you have recommendations of
0: other films to watch basically. I do, I do. Now, being being a, a Danish film, I haven't taken any kind of actors because, I mean, Matt Mekelson is obviously the big breakout star from this, but we'll touch on him probably next week when he's in Valhalla Rising. Um, so I haven't used that one up this week. So I've taken two that feel kind of thematic, and maybe, I think, done a similar thing in a different way. Maybe a better way. So my first recommendation is for also from 1996, and it is the breakout Scottish hit Train Spotting. Anyone who um, It is essentially the story of six Scots who get involved in heroin addicts and they get involved in a drug deal um, that goes awry in many ways. And it has the similar sort of thing to Pusher in that it isn't quite a clear narrative in the same way Hollywood movies are. Um, but it has what I think Pusher lacks, uh, which is some interesting narrative and interesting sort of visual elements and stylistic elements. That, uh, that raise it up uh, and it also has and it has brilliant performances across the board from all its main stars so if you haven't I must say I haven't seen T2 that came out last year it's on my to watch list so I can't say how the sequel goes um, but the first one certainly for me was a huge part of my teenage years, my, my cinematic education back then um, and I think it holds up to this day the second on my list is a film from 2011 and anyone who knows me well or listens to the show or follows me on Twitter, knows I watch a lot of horror films. Um, and I don't tend to get scared by them. Not many of these films affect me these days. Um, when you watch so many of these, you get a little bit, you know, um, immunised against them. But occasionally a film comes along that really can mess you up. Um, and, and this is one that did. So this is a film from 2011 uh, from director Ben Wheatley. Um, and it's the film Kill List. And this feels like a very out companion to Pusher in that it's about it's predominantly about two ex-marines in the UK who are now hitmen. Um and it has that same kind of they're just two blokes doing a job. Now their job is is being hitmen around the UK, but they're still just two blokes who are doing a job. They have the same inane conversations. Now this film takes that story in a much darker, weirder place than than Pusher does, and you start to bring in certain elements, especially of British folk horror um and some some more, more surreal elements, um, which give it somewhere to go and some interest. But it really, really messed me up. So it isn't one thing hard to do. it isn't one for the average viewer, but I, I genuinely loved it. I haven't gone back I'm a little scared too. I'm not gonna lie to you guys. Um, I've got it on Blu-ray at home to watch, and at some point I will crack it out when I'm feeling brave. Um, but it was well, it was the last film which I saw probably back in 2011, 2012 that really scared me and really messed me up in terms of uh, sort of leaving me shell shocked. That wasn't documentary. Like, documentaries obviously can I think, but instead of a narrative film, a fictional film, this was the last one. So yeah, it, not for faint heart, but if you want something a bit different, something a bit darker, something weird and British and odd and scary kill list is, is a good recommendation for me.
1: Right then. What about you Sam? Um, I have well I, I've sort of now got some master already with my um, recommendations for things that I was watching the very the episode um, and I am a huge fan of um some of the Nordic dramas, Swedish, Danish, Icelandic, um, and a couple of those have actor links. So Rob has suggested that um, maybe we can't find actor links, and I've tried very hard and found some. Um, So apart from Mans Wilkinson, as Rob said, we will leave him for next week. Um, Jesper Lohmann was in Pusher, and he was also in the original Danish Killing for Bridelson, which was exemplary, um, and the even the U.S. remake was all right. I mean, I, I think I I think I watched that first. Um, yeah, even that was although it was it was longer and it was a bit bloated. Even that was was all right. Such as the strength of this narrative. Um, and it's, it's it's particularly dark and uh, not just in an um, aesthetic way. Uh, the lead actress is brilliant, although she changes in later series. I believe um, I haven't seen past the first few series, and um, so I'd recommend the first few series of *For bridleton is the Danish name for *The Killing*. And my second one is another um, police procedural from that part of the world, and it's one I mentioned up top. It's The Bridge, or Brune. Um And the link is that um, Kim Bodnier, who plays Frank in Pusher, was also um, was a, a lead in The Bridge, it was... Uh, police cop called Martin and one, one of the, the brilliant things about the bridge is that it's um, set straddling Denmark and Sweden and nowhere else in the world really, I mean Sky tried it with a sort of English and French hybrid across the channel and it didn't really work. Nowhere else in the world have you got that that divide between countries and yet they can converse. You get them sort of speaking Danish and Swedish to each other and they're just about close enough for them to get along, but you have sort of that brittle, almost xenophobic attitude to the other at the same time as they're working together because Kim and his and Swedish counterparts, Vian, are on the same team, that ostensibly they are chasing the same person, and it's it's just brilliant, something about that tension within those who are working together makes makes this compelling so yes, those are my two for this week for Bridleson and Bruin.
0: Excellent, I must say I haven't seen either of them, but I will add them to my ever-growing list of recommendations things I should watch So, yeah. <laughs> so, guys, next week we are coming back to and uh, Reven, and we are talking about the 2009 film Valhalla Rising. So, he's finished up making the Pusher Trilogy and th- makes him move into English language in the um, He made, I think he made Bronson before this, um, but Valhalla Rising was... Um, for me, this is, first, this is the the one and only time that I worked with Nicholas Wrenreffin. I was the colourist on this film. Um, and so I have some interesting insights, hopefully, um, about making of the film. And I actually know, for once, what the intention was. Rather than Sam and I sitting here and kind of guessing what we think they're trying to do. I know! I know what they're trying to <laughs> do! I was there when we made decisions! Um, so we'll be back next week with Valhalla Rising, um, Nicholas Reffin's film from 2009. Till then, guys, you can find us both on Twitter at Precious Podcast.
1: You can find just me at Life underscore academic.
0: And you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll see you then. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production.
1: Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash kaiju industries. Rawr.